You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to another episode of What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. Our new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and those, well, that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Tobias Lefkovich, Citigroup Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, on how the narrative has changed a lot in the markets recently, and he says we haven't seen panic yet this year. So the narrative's changed a lot, even from January, for everybody even last week. In January, everybody was really bulled up. They were feeling really comfortable. They were seeing earnings revisions picking up, economic data getting better. Um, and obviously, the bond yield was also surging at that time. So you saw people kind of excited about markets, and then we saw the wage numbers from January come in early February. Markets kind of took a tumble as people got nervous about inflation. Now we've broadened it out. To a certain degree, what happened late last week was the trade issues mm-hmm. and the broadening out of trade. It wasn't just steel and aluminum tariffs. All of a sudden, it was much wider, and the fear that this would become somewhat more significant. And it almost got to the point where people were starting to suggest that, that President Trump was no longer pro-growth, pro-business, but actually was the problem. And, and, and that narrative changed. And some of the news over the weekend, even this morning, saying, wait a minute, the Chinese are willing to work with the, uh, with the Americans on tariffs. Maybe it isn't, it's not 50, 60 billion tariffs, but it's tariffs on 50 to 60 billion dollars. So it might be 3 billion. People kind of got a little bit more calm. There's even been some commentary this morning that the interview yesterday didn't have any, it didn't shed any major new light to, to change Daniel's the, 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 the sexual dalliance. Dalliance. <laughs> yes. Right? Okay. Dalliance. Great word, by the Thank way. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, you know, that, that, that calmed some people down and then say, wait a minute, we sold off a little too much and maybe we, you know, the world hasn't ended. Uh, Tobias, you do a lot of interesting work on sentiment and you've had this panic euphoria uh, indicator that you've looked at a long time. And of course, one of the big questions is always, you know, when people want to know is like, is this what panic looks like? Is this what panic looks like? Okay, this must be panic. (coughs) Have we seen panic at any time 
in the last, or something resembling panic at any time in the last several weeks? Is no, not at all. Up? We saw panic in the early part of 2016, even through mid-2016, as people were worried about credit spreads widening out, the energy market had kind of blown up and caused this fear that maybe funding costs had gotten to the point where we'd go into a recession. What we see now is kind of pulling off from euphoric levels of excitement to more neutral ah. levels. And is that what January was? Because that yes. felt like euphoric. But well, I'm- our models were telling us around maybe a week before Christmas that we already got in there. And that was, again, around the tax cuts, around the expectations. This would be very, very positive. Earnings would really move higher. And all that's fine. It just The way I describe it to most people is, you know, people were leaning over their skis. That's not a problem on blues and greens. But if you're a skier, you really don't want to do the double blacks. Yeah. That'll end badly. And to a certain agree it did and people just got a little too excited and now it's more neutral you know people aren't fearful this your point about panic but there is kind of this more neutralish issue and we need data now to kind of tell us what to do who is behind the volumes today i don't know and i don't mean that but but, but i mean you know as we see this volatility Mm -hmm. who's doing it well, prob- probably some people who are short, covering their shorts as the market started turning. Um, maybe a little bit of stock buyback activity from companies that have a fair amount of cash available to them. There has been reports that, that stock, buyback, stock buyback desks have been doubly busy relative to last year. Um, and part of it is when the, you know, their program set up, when the stock's down 5%, they'll buy X. When it's down 10%, they'll buy Y. When it's down 15 they'll buy a Z. So that's you really have this ability to, to step up. the buy. So maybe that's part of it. It's really hard to tell. Going back to the January action real quickly, as I was saying, it certainly felt like euphoria. Stocks were going up every single day, so it's not at all surprising that your model suggested, yeah, that was euphoria. I think we remember it. What were the actual components that are less fuel-based? Because we could say, oh, it feels like euphoria. But what were the components that really put it into that territory? So there are a number of things that moved up. I'll tell you the ones that have pulled back that aren't as extended. So things, one of the things we watch is NASDAQ trading volume relative to the New York Stock Exchange trading volume, because NASDAQ tends to be, you know, faster growth, somewhat more risky stock. So if that volume is really, really picking up relative to the New York Stock Exchange, and I don't mean to suggest that it's made up of only staid old, old economy companies, but the, the notion of that gap tells you something about the risk-taking ability. Believe it or not, gasoline prices huh. is another thing that's in there. As gasoline prices go up, often it, it ends up suggesting, hey, the economy's better, earnings are looking better, things like that. So that's another one that's fallen back from, from extended levels. And margin debt has also come back uh, from extended levels in January. So those are three of the mm. components of the nine-component model that have backed off. All right, so looking ahead, in the days to come, what asset class would you look at to get a gauge on where stocks go? Is it going to be the dollar? Is it going to be credit yields? Is it going to be treasuries where we haven't seen a reciprocal kind of movement? So we, we do watch credit heavily because it tends to be a pretty good lean indicator for economic trends, um, particularly the senior loan officer survey for the Federal Reserve Board on commercial and industrial loans. Mm-hmm. Are, are people you know, tightening or easing credit availability? And actually, banks have been easing credit availability. We expect to see an inflection on bank loans already in the first quarter picking up, and that's been something that people have been worried about. But that tends to be a lagging indicator. So when it turns, people get all excited, but it's not really telling you anything you shouldn't have been seeing literally six quarters in advance based on the historical relationships. And we spoke to Neil Shearing, chief emerging markets economist at Capital Economics, who joined us to discuss rhetoric versus reality when it comes to China and trade. There's a pattern here, which is that we see a ratcheting up of rhetoric, uh, measures announced, 
that then the administration typically rose back. We saw that with steel, big exemptions for the major producers, things settled down a bit. We saw the same thing with China. Uh, I suspect we're in a pattern now where we see rhetoric being quite fiery. And actually, you know, so far, the actions have been pretty limited. So the lesson is to not get too worked up over the initial announcement and sort of watch these the, the, the back channel play out to see what the ultimate form of the tariff or the trade action. Precisely. So, so wait to see what the ultimate form of the tariff action or whatever it might be from the U.S. is. Yeah. Also wait to see what the retaliation from the trading partner might be, because so far that's been very limited. Yet yeah, you say this is a pattern the the, the the fear is that President Trump could change it up once again, that uh, he might actually levy something and, and go with it all the way rather than use that as a negotiating stance. I mean, so countries are going to be tempted to respond to each step along the way. Certainly investors have kind of done that initially. Yeah, exactly. I think, but I think the market's starting to learn. So if you look at the market reaction, at least over the past couple of days, um, EM currencies, which you would expect to be hit hard over all these kind of protectionist concerns, actually, it's been the dollar that's been weak and the EM mm. currencies have been pretty strong. So I think the market started to learn to look through the rhetoric, start to focus instead on the actual meat uh, of the measures. If that's the case, why did uh, investors in the U.S. sell down stocks so much? I mean, the, the reaction was stronger <coughs> here in the U.S. That's certainly the case. I mean, and, and in fact, equity markets in emerging markets sold off too, but it was the currencies that we saw strengthened. I think I mean, there's, there's several potential explanations. But I think one that we need to think about is whether or not investors are starting to get a bit more nervous uh, about the potential kind of policy shifts in the U.S. in terms of um, it used to be the case that, quote-unquote, quote, the adults were in charge in the White House. Now we start to see the economic nationalists, perhaps in the ascendancy, and perhaps that's hitting U.S. assets. Even if, in theory, the pattern is for dramatic rhetoric and then scale down, A, is it possible that something could go off the rails if you get that sort of back-and-forth, tit-for-tat reaction? And B, in the event that, say, with China we were to see a real escalation, who really gets hit the hardest here in the EM universe that you're looking at? Yes, I mean, on the first question, absolutely, of course, it's, you know, we're dealing with uh, a situation that's incredibly unpredictable, unpredictable actors on both sides. Of course, it's conceivable that this whole thing could un, uh, ratchet up uh, unexpectedly. I think the other thing is, as well, from an economic standpoint, it's not just the macro impact we need to think about. It might be the case that some of these measures have no impact whatsoever on the macro economy, but they hit a particular chip manufacturer that's a big component of, say, the Korean equity market that brings down Korean stocks. So we need to disaggregate, if you like, the, the economic effects and the, and the market effects. So um, if I were Tom Keen, I would say, uh, let me rip up the script for a second. We <laughs> did get news today that Kim Jong-un went to Beijing to uh, meet with some Chinese leaders. And I'm wondering, that is the backdrop to all of this, is the U.S. wants China's help in de-escalating the nuclear tensions with North Korea. What do you read into that and how significant could that be for markets? I think that, yeah, that's absolutely critical, isn't it? I think, and that partly explains, I think, why the U.S. has you know, pushed this quite hard, fiery rhetoric. We see the administration pushing fiery rhetoric, but then step back. And the reason it stepped back is because you need China on side uh, when you're dealing with North Korea. I think fundamentally, though, there's simply no chance, and this is perhaps the biggest risk, there's simply no chance I can see that the U.S. surplus uh, deficit, rather, with China uh, goes down by $100 billion. Uh, there's no chance that's going to happen when the fiscal policy is expanding, the economy is doing quite well. Uh, in that situation, I think the deficit goes up, and that's when we start to perhaps see. All right, let's say we're not really going to get a $100 billion decrease in the trade deficit. 
What kind of, say, fig leaf measures could you envision China offering Trump that Trump would feel that he can trumpet? Yes, exactly. So I think there's several areas that it could work. One is that market access is clearly a big thing. So we've already started to see the market being opened up to, say, U.S. beef producers. That's something that's taken far too long for China actually to, frankly, do. And I think so measures market access, measures on intellectual property protection, um, again, may not amount to much, but would at least enable a, a win for Trump to be able to say, look, I've pushed hard and this is what I've got in return. Uh, ultimately, though, doesn't really change much on the ground. So we've got uh, steel, aluminum, we've got agriculture. What about intellectual property rights? Because ultimately, that's, that's what this is over. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a far more thorny issue. It's much more difficult to pin down. Um, obviously, if you've got a particular concern over trade and market access in a particular good, you can just apply a tariff, impose quotas, uh, IP far more difficult to deal with. And actually, that's another of the issue. Digital services, there's, trade has become far more sophisticated. Supply chains are developing and evolving. Um, so it's not just about tariffs and quotas and you know, goods. We need to think about services, intellectual property, and the, the whole gamut. You mentioned earlier that we should watch very specific stocks or companies rather than just thinking about this, the micro. Where else, like what industries, what countries would you have your eyes on to really gauge the market reaction? So I think that obviously China is the, 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 the big one here. But then you need to think about the economies that are plugged into the supply chains in China. Right. So the Koreas, the Taiwans, um, Vietnam, albeit the, the equity market is obviously much smaller and firms less, uh, less likely to be listed. Uh, but it's really, at the, you know, China's become this manufacturing hub with the spokes going out all over East yeah. Asia. So that's where the pain will be felt. And the highlight of our week was a conversation with Nobel laureate Paul Krugman. We had him on for three segments, and we'll bring them all to you now. In our first segment, we talked about trade, which is, of course, his specialty. It's very hard to have winners in trade wars. There's, you know, there, there, there's some pause, but basically not. I mean, basically, the, if, if uh, whatever it is that Trump thinks he's doing, if he has any clear idea at all, he's not going to win it. He might be able to get something, he, you know, he can claim, but no, it, and, and it's very, very destructive for U.S. manufacturing. So far, uh, the announcements have been uh, pretty mild, and the responses have been pretty mild. If it stands currently, uh, a, what do you see as the macroeconomic impacts, and perhaps more importantly, what kind of risk would you assign this sort of spiraling out of control? Okay, so what we've actually seen so far is almost nothing. I mean, it's a, it's a phony trade war. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's uh, a little bit of, of noise, some saber rattling, and the actual content is almost nil. That deal with South Korea is almost indistinguishable from the deal we had before, right? Yeah. There's, there's a, and, and the stuff even on you know, the steel tariff has been... So all of that doesn't matter very much, except insofar as it rattles people's confidence. Um, could spin out of control. I mean, we have a... You know, everybody likes to blame foreigners for their problems. We do, but so does everybody else. So that's how it runs out of control. You've conceded, though, that China is a bad actor when it comes to global economics, global trade. China's pretty dodgy on intellectual property. It subsidizes the steel, the green energy industry, which increases global capacity and drives down prices. Is taking a tough stance on China, whatever the unrest that causes in markets and everyone around, a necessary step then to win some good behavior from them? If it was really tied, I mean, 
it, first of all, there's a problem. We, we depend upon a system of international rules. It looks like the U.S. is about to just throw that out the window. And so we're not going to get any effective coordinated action against China on intellectual property, which is the biggest issue. If we the, ourselves are just saying, oh, the hell with, with uh, the WTO, forget about the international trade rules. And it's, this is just not well targeted. And that is not how Trump states his goal. Right? He's worried about the bilateral deficit with China, which is totally the wrong thing to be focused on. I'm struggling to understand the industries that President Trump is trying to support the most. There's yeah. a lot of talk about manufacturing, and yet when it comes to intellectual property uh, issues, it's big tech in the U.S. that stands to potentially benefit the most from any changes or a more fair playing ground with China, no? Well, tech, pharma, and Hollywood, right? Those are the, those really? are the big IP industries, and they're all big U.S. exports of, uh, of services. So, yeah, I mean, he talks, but it's not, you know, the intellectual property stuff is not coming from the Trump administration. That's coming from people trying to make some sense, but maybe there isn't any sense. Well, I'm trying to understand how then this plays to his base, right? I mean, is right. this a consistent message between the steel tariffs, which is directly related to manufacturing, right. and, you know, just generally cracking down on what a lot of people on both sides of the aisle think are unfair practices from China? Right. But that's not Trump's message. His, his message is, I'm, I'm going to bring back manufacturing. It's, all, it's the rest of us who are saying, actually, the Chinese are bad actors on intellectual property. That's not where he's going. Uh, you mentioned the South Korea deal, and you're like, in the end, this is kind of indistinguishable right. from the existing trading relationship with South Korea. Does it seem plausible to you that that could be a model for all this stuff, whether it's NAFTA, China, basically rewrite the same thing, but in some way that Trump gets to claim a win and then none of this really Yeah, that's, that's the happy scenario. I've been thinking there are three ways we can have a trade war. We can have a phony trade war in which Trump gets to claim something or other, although it won't show, and I'm not sure if that, but it's, where it's just, a, it's just reality TV, right? A reality TV trade war. Um, there's a uh, massive tariffs all around, which would be, a, I'm going to call that a clean trade war, uh, which would be destructive, but at least would be kind of across the board. And then there could be just a lot of dirty special interest deals that protect particular friends of Trump. Uh, so there are three different possibilities here. You've written about this recently. Explain that last part, because I think that third scenario you, you describe is probably the least well understood. So I think people imagine the benign trade war, the bad trade war that damages the macroeconomy, and then the kind of trade war that ends up just being sort of small bore things where all the winners happen to be friends of Trump. What's that scenario? Well, you know, people have been asking, why does the president of the United States have so much authority to unilaterally declare stuff? And it's basically, it's complicated in detail, but the basic story is that, uh, you know, 80 years ago, Congress gave up its ability to write detailed trade legislation, a lot, ceded a lot of the authority to the president because it couldn't help itself. That when you had uh, when you had Congress writing the details of tariffs here, there, and everything, and having to pass line by line new trade agreements, the special interest politics were totally out of control, and all of that presumed that the president of the United States was going to be a fairly clean-handed actor who wasn't going to uh, do that kind of thing very much, and uh, that doesn't look like a very good assumption right now. You mentioned that the president focuses too much on the trade balance. How that's not the right way to look at things. Um, having said that. If you wanted to look at the trade balance uh, of different U.S. cities, there's something to be learned from when you look at that and apply it to international trade relationships. Yeah, I, I've been trying to do that. I mean, we don't have great balance of payments data, but we have some, actually, believe it or not, for U.S. metropolitan areas. Um, and what you see is that within the United States, we have huge trade imbalances. Some metro areas run big deficits. Some run big surpluses. And it's not the ones that you might think if you think the trade balances 
that a surplus is a sign of success. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a trade deficit on the part of Atlanta, basically because Atlanta is a fast-growing city, which is drawing in a lot of investment, and that's money coming from the rest of the United States. And the flip side of that is a trade deficit. New Orleans is a big trade surplus city because it's shrinking. So it's, it's a, and I, I think it's worth looking at that kind of thing as a way of understanding um, what international trade balances are about, which is not what Trump thinks they're about. And it's important to understand, as you uh, suggested there, that the trade balance and the investment surplus are the flip side of the exact same coin. So if you're yeah. in the booming area, everyone wants to invest their money in, uh, into and then... Long, long ago, I was in a conversation with someone who was explaining to a U.S. trade representative that, about the accounting identity that said that the savings and investment balance and the trade balance were the same thing. He says, so what am I doing? What is my job? <laughs> so, no, it's true. Uh, that fundamentally is investment flows that determine trade balances. We also talked to him about inflation and the challenges facing the Fed in this economy. Well, normally you raise wages if you have to to get workers. You don't do it because you are a nice guy. Nice guys don't finish last in business, right? You, you do it because they, that's what you have to do. So usually tight labor markets are what lead to wage increases. And we have the puzzle, that right now. puzzle right now, if we have what looks like a very tight labor market and wage increases are still very, very modest, and we're all trying to figure out, and part of the answer is um, economic data ain't that great. There may be more wage increases going on than we realize. The labor markets might not be as tight as they look, although there are a number of indicators that suggest they are. Another I, I personal theory, but I have no real evidence for this, is that people remember the Great Recession. People, are, our companies are really reluctant to lock in higher labor costs because, for all they know, the bad times may come back. It's a little bit like what happened for a while, that long period of restrained inflation after World War II when people still remember the Great Depression. But nobody really knows, and we have no idea how much lower unemployment can go. So what should the Fed do when the conditions for inflation and the conditions for higher wages seem to be in place, and the only thing that's missing is just that one little detail about the lack of wage growth. Well, I would say, I've been saying this for years now, wait until you see the whites of inflation's eyes. I I would not be raising if I were the Fed. Easy for me to say, because they're under a lot of pressure to, you know, head off any, but so far inflation is still slightly below their target, and their target's too low. Their argument would be, well, if inflation really gathers steam, as we predict, then we're going to be behind, and then we're going to have to induce a recession if we wait too long. And that it's sort of, there's a nonlinearity to the timing of the rate hikes. Does that concern you? Um, there isn't really a nonlinearity. They might, have to, they might have to slam the brakes, and it could be a little bit uncomfortable. But the danger of, not, of tightening too soon is much greater. It's really still very asymmetric. If they tighten too soon and the economy does slide and inflation drops below target, then we're set up in a situation where the Fed won't have enough ammunition to fight the next big shock when it comes. So they, you know, they, letting inflation go over 2% for a while is okay. All right. I want to look at the yield curve, and I've been called by some on Twitter a yield curve criminal. I want to look at the gap between uh, two-year and 10-year Treasury yields, which is narrowed to the least since 2007. Some people say, eh, not a big deal, just a supply and demand dynamic with the T-bill auctions that are coming out. But are you suggesting that perhaps this signals that the Federal Reserve is making a policy error by hiking at this time? Um, It might. I mean, the market does not see inflation. And uh, the, um, 
Now, part of this is just mechanical, that you had to have an upward sloping yield curve as long as you were at zero, because basically it was a one-way option. Interest rates could go up, short rates could go up, and they couldn't go down. Uh, and because we're now some ways above zero, that goes away. So there's some sort of underlying reason, just because we're a little bit away from the liquidity trap, just away from the zero lower bound, you expect that yield curve to, to flatten. But still, I have to say, it, it does look a little bit like the market is a lot less optimistic that we're, you know, that normalcy is guaranteed than the Fed is. Fold in the tax cuts here, because wasn't all that fiscal spending and, and the fiscal uh, boost that that was going to give us supposed to usher in growth and usher in inflation? Yeah, um, should be. I mean, the Fed, people on the Fed, even the Dove's been saying the headwinds have turned into tailwinds. But I have to say, so far, you aren't really seeing it. You know, we're looking, never, never mind fourth quarter last year. That's not showing what, but we're not seeing investment intentions appearing to go up. We're not seeing, you know, even the stock market is below where it was, or last I looked, was below where it was when the tax cut was passed, which is bizarre given that it was a corporate profits tax cut mostly. So um, maybe not very much stimulus out of this thing. And in fact, you even say that tax cuts could lead to companies cutting wages. Yes. That's an interesting idea. It, how, it's, how, how, how it's that quirky, work? but it's, uh, you know, suppose that you have a company that actually is a nice guy, you know, where the leadership actually does want to do nice things for workers. But now they're saying, well, you know, if I raise wages, that cuts profits a little bit. And it used to be that I paid a lot of that increase in profits and extra taxes, now less of that. So the, the disincentive to be hmm. a, uh, a nice guy has gotten stronger. Interesting. Uh, is there a point where you have, so it's like you gave the various theories for why we haven't really seen wage inflation pick up. Maybe the data is bad on the wage side. Maybe the labor market is a little looser. Maybe there's just something, this residual behavior on the part of corporate managers disinclined to raise wages. Does there get to a point where the unemployment rate drops far enough, or perhaps has it got there already, where people have to like really start thinking, rethinking about the models between inflation and wages and unemployment? Yeah. I mean, you always got to stand, but... At this, look, we, in some way, it would be really, really hard to tell a story where unemployment doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And we have lots of evidence for, you know, more, uh, hard cases make bad law, but hard cases make good economics. And if you look at the really extreme cases, like the Southern European countries that had soaring unemployment, inflation came way down. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of evidence from the past 10 years that unemployment does affect inflation. Just real quick, I'm wondering how closely you're watching the consumer debt levels, specifically auto loans, credit card debt, and other uh, consumer Student credit. Loans. Student loans, it's been yeah. expanding dramatically, and delinquencies have been going up, which is sort of surprising at this point in the credit cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, and all of that is part of the savings rate is very low. Right. So we're seeing a, an expansion that is based not on an investment boom, but on consumers basically saying, you know, spend like there's no tomorrow, more or less literally. And it's, it's a little bit unnerving. I, now, I'm not... You know, it's, it's not, these numbers are not nearly as big. It's not like the housing bubble. It, the, all of these debts combined are nothing like mortgage debt as a potential risk. But there could be a bump in the road coming from there. And finally, the backlash against big tech. We spoke to Paul Krugman about his views on antitrust and how regulators should address the major market power that big tech companies hold. Trouble is, as, as so often happens, um, Amazon is in some ways a bad actor. 
certainly on, on so it's been exerting market power on a bunch of stuff. Of course, what Trump has against it, what he claims to have against it, is he thinks it doesn't pay taxes, which is not true. And <laughs> um, what he really has against it is the Washington Post, right? <laughs> that Jeff Bezos uh, owns the Washington Post, and, and which is not friendly to Trump. So there are real issues with Amazon, but not the ones that Trump is going after. Well, but what could uh, legally the U.S. do? How would it go after Amazon from an antitrust perspective, yeah. from uh, you know a utility regulation standpoint? What, what do you well, think? antitrust is the is the obvious point, and there are surely reasonable antitrust issues. There's lots of, I mean, you have to define markets and so on, but there's lots of, actually, I would say that, that Amazon has a lot of monopsony power. It is, it is, is so, uh, the opposite of monopoly. It's, it's the sole buyer. So much of the book trade mm-hmm. runs through, so much of a lot of, a lot of uh, content trade runs through Amazon, that Amazon has too much power to, set, to push down prices, to discriminate against, uh, against sellers. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff. They also, Amazon is in large part a utility now. I mean, they make a lot of their money off, basically off their server farms and their cloud, not off their, off their retail. So uh, there, you, can imagine, uh, you can imagine all kinds of reasonable things we could do. You can't imagine this administration doing them, but that's another story. Well, another gripe that uh, the president has against Amazon is that he talks with a lot of real estate guys. I mean, that's his forte, right? And they're all talking about how Amazon put retailers out of business, which means that they don't have uh, tenants anymore. So that's a factor, too which, you know, the retail industry is hurting as a result of Amazon. Yeah, it is. But that is actually, I'm afraid, that's kind of valid technological change. I mean, uh, you know, I'm an Amazon Prime cut. You know, people, people are going to do a lot of shopping online, whether or not it's Amazon. Uh, Brick-and-mortar stores are going to play a smaller role in our economy than they used to, for very good reasons. And that's, uh, you know, you're not going to, that's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not misbehavior. It's, uh, there are plenty of things that are, but that's not one of them. In addition to Amazon, there's just been a lot of talk lately about the extraordinary concentration of power in, uh, in tech, big technology companies, Facebook obviously being the big one the last couple of weeks. On the left side of the spectrum, much more interested in the last couple of years, uh, uh, more aggressive use of antitrust. Is there a case for all of these big companies that have exert extraordinary power in some way or another that antitrust uh, is a could be a useful tool in diminishing that corporate power? Uh, sure. I mean, with the, you know, the... There is more concentration in key tech sectors than there ever was in the sectors, you know, uh, Amazon or Facebook are in their way much more dominant than U.S. Steel was at the worst of its power. So uh, and arguably do more harm to the economy. So if we could have an intelligent, smart, you know, well calibrated antitrust policy, a revival of antitrust would be a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how this plays out because one of Amazon's advantages and a potential liability for the rest of us is the data that it has. And we saw what happened with Facebook. You know, what do you think should be the government response, if any, to either policing uh, to make sure there are no bad actors uh, right. in you know, the tech sector you know, with respect to the data usage uh, or perhaps disseminating that among others? No, well, there may be... We don't know, I mean, it's, but I, I would think that rules is where you come in. How do you protect privacy? I mean, we, we live in an era where there are lots of ways in which privacy could be invaded uh, to, by bad actors of various kinds, and ultimately, um, you're going to have to have rules to, to, to protect people's privacy, in that, uh, and, and this would be just a piece of that. Paul, how optimistic are you that the Democrats are going to retake the House in November? What do I know? (laughs) Right. But you must have a you must have a a gut and just your own feelings about how things are going. I just feel. I mean, the I I, you know I read Nate Silver. (laughs) I I look and say, okay, the 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 polling average is right on the margin, but there are other reasons. Special elections would suggest a Democratic sweep, and God knows. 
uh, I, I will say there does seem to be, a, for, for the first time I can remember, there's way more energy on the, on the center left than there is on the right. And so that probably means that the Democrats have the edge. But, you know, think about Virginia. Huge wave in Virginia. Republicans still ended up controlling the legislature despite a, a nine-point Democratic win. That does it for this week's edition of What You Missed This Week. And be sure to tune in to our daily show, 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television. What You Miss? The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.